0: Is that a powerful time of worship? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We do say hallelujah. All we have is Jesus. All we need for now and for all of eternity. We want to thank you and praise you, God our Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, for this wonderful gift of life in Jesus Christ for being part of your forever family, for redemption bought at such a great price. All we can say is hallelujah. We love you, Jesus. We love you this morning. We pray, Father, that our lives would be pleasing unto you. We lift our burdens and our hearts before you today. Father, we want to cast those cares upon you, knowing that you indeed care for each one of us and You know the very hairs on our heads. You know the burdens on our heart today. You know the desires that we have. And I pray that you take our desires and bring them in alignment with your purpose and your plan and your will, and that we might seek you. And Father, that your name would be simply glorified in everything we do and everything we say, not only here, but in our day-by-day life, that others might see Jesus Christ that others might come to know him. Father, we ask your blessing now upon the hearing, the reading, the ministry of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word out of respect for the word. We're going to be reading from John chapter 3, verses 22 to verse 30. It's also in your bulletin if you want to follow along. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Enon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him the one who is the bride is the groom. And the friend of the groom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Please be seated. Liberty Airport was experiencing bad weather. Subsequently, most of the flights were either delayed or canceled. One first-class passenger was haranguing with a gate service customer rep. She was patiently listening to him as he explained, I have a first-class ticket. I've got to get to my important meeting. And she said, "Sir, but all the other people are in the same circumstance, sure, and I can't help you." She continued to explain she couldn't help him, but he went on and on. And then he began to say, "Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am?" She said, "Sir, wait here a minute. I have an idea." She got on the intercom and asked for the public's help in assisting a fellow passenger. She said, I have a gentleman here at gate 16 who doesn't know who he is. (laughs) Well, our topic this morning is knowing who we are in Christ. And I hope by the end of our time together, you will know who you are in Christ, or at least be reminded. The church has for its theme this year, contentment. And so I want to pick up that thought this morning from John chapter 3, contentment. Contentment, knowing who we are in Christ, is a salient component of contentment. Let me seek to uh, set a little bit of the uh, background for you. What contentment is not? Contentment is not an excuse not to grow or mature. And I'll come back to that at the end of the message. So you'll know I'm getting to the end when I come back to that. But we are not to be content where we are spiritually. That's not what contentment is. Contentment is not an excuse to remain in sin. Will I have... 95% 95% of my sin conquered, i content to live with 5%. That's not what contentment is. Contentment is not an excuse to tolerate sin and error. Contentment is not an excuse not to work hard. Well, God will take care of it. I don't have to do anything. Contentment is not an excuse not to practice good stewardship. Contentment is humbly submitting to the will of God. Contentment is patiently dealing with circumstances that God gives to us many beyond our control. Contentment is graciously accepting the blessings that God pours out upon us. Contentment is willing and willingly accepting whatever consequence is coming from doing what is right. Contentment is, comes from walking the way of the cross. We live in a world that not only celebrates sin, but asks us to embrace it. We live in a world that breeds discontent. We are bombarded with the message that to be happy, we need more things. We need fewer wrinkles, and yes, it's fewer. I had less wrinkles, and my wife corrected me, said it's less wrinkles because you can count them. I'm not sure you can count our wrinkles, but she said you can count them. So we need more things, fewer wrinkles, more choices, better and longer vacations, fewer troubles, but ultimately our trouble is the heart. The heart is desperately wicked. We're often discontented in our jobs, in our marriages, in our work, in our homes, in our churches, in most areas of our lives. A man was finally rescued after being on a desert, deserted island for 13 years. When they got there, there were three huts. They said, you've been here for 13 years. You're all alone. Why do you have three huts on this island? He said, well, that first hut over there, that's my house. That house, that second hut, that's my church. And the third hut is the church I used to attend. (laughs) We can become easily content with many things, can't we? And we can despair that we can never attain it. But the Bible teaches that we can and should be content, and it is possible. The Gospel of John opens up with a wonderful prologue in John 1.1, the eternal word, the deity, the eternal God, uh, one of the most beautiful sentences in the Greek New Testament, enunciating the eternal word has come into the world. In John chapter 1, verse 6, we're in, introduced to John the baptizer with three uh, phrases. There was a man sent from God who came to bear witness of the life of Jesus Christ. John 1.23, John the baptizer tells us he's an echo. The word has come. He's just an echo. He's just echoing. The voice of the shepherd is replacing the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. So let's look at that setting there in John chapter 3, verse 22. And after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. I'm not going to talk about baptism this morning. There's a lot about baptism in here. Now, John was baptizing near Enon, near Salem, because there was much water there. we see immersion there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. According to John chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus was not baptizing, simply his disciples were baptizing under his authority, under his direction. Verse 23 here tells us John was baptizing, and that many were coming to him, But most were going over to Jesus. For a short time until John the Baptist was put in prison, which we have in verse 24, the ministries of Jesus and John the baptizer overlapped. These two locations weren't far from each other. And so you have two men baptizing not far from each other. What's going to happen? There's going to come a comparison. People are going to begin to look and compare the two groups. It's a natural tendency to make comparison John the Baptist had great popularity. Uh, Luke informs us, multitudes went out to hear John. Matthew tells us about uh, John, that people came from Jerusalem and all the region beyond the Jordan River. Some had journeyed for several days just to hear John the Baptist preach. And so for several years, John the Baptist has been preaching. Large crowds are coming to him, and now they're going over to Jesus. Not too far away. And John's disciples noticed it. They became worried. They didn't want to see their teacher. They didn't want to see their leader take second place. Verse 25, and there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and Jews about purification. We'll come back to that at the end. And as time passed, John's disciples said, We've got to let the, we've got to let the boss know what's going on. He may not know what's going on. He's so busy preaching, he may not know what's going on. So, verse 26, they came to John and said, Rabbi, He who was with you beyond Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all, well, that's kind of uh, exaggeration, isn't it? But all men are going to him. But here we want to key in on verse 27, John's perspective on this, and the perspective on contentment. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. His answer is, the reason these people are leaving me and going to Jesus is because it's part of God's plan. It's part of God's will that they leave me and go to Jesus because a person can receive nothing unless it is given to him by God. We like to think we have these certain things, our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our time, our money, and so forth. We have nothing except it's been given to us by God. So instead of feeling sorry for himself, John the baptizer is rejoicing at the popularity. He just doesn't say, oh, well, I guess that's the way it is. This is bound to happen someday. He's rejoicing. John did not remind his disciples that Jesus had said, truly, when you see truly in the Bible, it's like putting it in bold. It's like truly, truly, verily, verily. May I have your attention? Truly, I tell you, among those born of woman, there was not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He doesn't remind them that Jesus said that but he begins at looking at his earthly abilities, earthly success from a heavenly perspective. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He has that divine, heavenly perspective. John is saying ultimately all success comes from the same source. Jesus is having success. I'm having success. It's all from the same source. The Lord's over it all. Paul echoes a similar thought over in 1 Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? What do we have that we did not first receive from God? God is the giver and we should rejoice not only on what he gives, but what he gives to other people. That's hard, isn't it? Sometimes that's very difficult when you see somebody else being blessed, somebody else getting something that hmm, maybe you think you should have had, that should have been yours or you should be in that place, or you should be acknowledged in that way, and somebody else gets the credit. Somebody else gets the glory, if you please. Man craves popularity, approval, attention, applause, affirmation. John's disciples were no different. John first responds by reminding his disciples, they do not win, disciples. It's a work of God. It's God's work. It's God's work from beginning to end. And all of the followers they receive are given to them by God. And this freed John for a whole new perspective on things. It's not mine. I've given it over. And what I'm suggesting this morning, whatever we have in our lives, we give it back over. As we sang this morning, it's all the Lord's from beginning to end. And not be jealous of somebody else or coveting something else. Certainly we want God's best. We want what he has for us. So we want to use it. But without Bitterness without resentment, and without unhealthy competition. John understood that Jesus' success also came from the Father. And everything that God allows is wise, it is wonderful, it is good. Back over in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, Job had lost just about everything. The message came to Job, that his family had been lost. He had ten children. And Job rose up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he worshipped. When he went through one of the greatest losses of his life, he worshipped. That's where it begins, with worshipping. Realize that all things come from God. And then we know those famous verse: um, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes, and Job was able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you think that's not good theology, you read on, and all of this Job did not sin. That's good theology. saying everything we have, God may choose to bless today, he may choose to take something away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all his from beginning to end. And that's what John the baptizer sees here. The Lord gave me a ministry for a while. I saw a lot of blessing. A lot of people were repenting. But now it's moving in another direction. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's words to the Corinthians. We are only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, God makes it grow. Without God's blessing is nothing. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes all things grow. The disciples were simply vessels. Simply vessels. That's all we are. We're simply vessels. Paul writes about us as being common clay pots. Little clay pots. Some crack pots, but we're all in there. Little clay pots through which the light of Jesus Christ can shine. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency might be seen through us, giving, taking, or wherever we may be, that his light may be seen through us. Verse 28 here, John uh, tells his disciples, it's no surprise, because God had sent him for this very thing. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. God sent him for this. He fulfilled God's will. He fulfilled God's plan. That was God's plan. John knew it, and he was content with God's plan for his life. And then he gives a wonderful illustration here, beginning in verse 29. He who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John the Baptist calls himself the friend of the groom, it's not his wedding. He's not the main attraction. In life, you are not the main attraction. It should be Jesus. His function was to serve the groom. It's the, the closest that we might have in our own culture would be a best man slash wedding planner. Uh, because this man who is known in the Old Testament as a shushman, uh did a lot more than what the best men do today. In the Jewish culture, during the time of Christ, the best man was called the friend of the groom, the shogsman. He was in charge of everything. The friend of the groom was the most trusted friend of both the bride and the groom. He had the responsibilities, many in preparing for the wedding, protecting them, and acting as a liaison. You see, they didn't have the ability to text each other, these couples, living in different uh, towns. This shogsman went back and forth and carried messages back and forth. He sent out the wedding invitations or personally delivered them. He made the preparations. He was responsible for everything about the wedding except for the bride and the groom. His most important task was guarding the bridal chamber, listening for the groom's voice. Let me just give you a quick rundown of the, the wedding, a Jewish wedding in Jesus' time. The first major step would be, we would call the betrothal. It involved the establishment of the wedding covenant. The prospective groom, the groom travels from his town to the bride's town. What does that remind you of? Who left glory? Came to earth to look for a bride. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth. As he gets to the prospective bride's house, he's going to negotiate with the father the bride price. I didn't have to do that, but uh, that's what they did in Bible times. There was a bride price involved. Did Jesus pay a price? He knew what the price was going to be. He knew what it was going to cost when he came. He knew he was going to have to give his life. He was going to forever change his nature. He was going to have to take the wrath and the hell of God for our sins in our place. We sang about it this morning. Once the groom paid the price, they sipped a little bit of wine from the same cup together. Remind you of something that happens on the first Sunday of the month? A new covenant in my blood. And the man and the woman were regarded as husband and wife. We talk about security of the believer. They had security. That is to understand why Mary and Joseph had, why Joseph had a problem. They were considered married. They had not consummated the marriage, but they were considered married. And that's why they had to... Joseph said, maybe I should divorce her. With a covenant in place, the groom leaves the bride's family, returns to the father's house, to prepare a place that remind you of something over in John chapter 14 John chapter 14 Jesus said in my father's house are many dwelling places if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place I will come again he came to earth he paid the price he brought us into the new covenant in his blood and now he's gone to the father's house to do what? Prepare a place for us. And if I go, I will come again. You're not going to leave your bride there. He's not going to leave our bride, his bride here. He's gone to prepare a place. So the, uh, the groom's task was to build a room in which he and the bride would live in the father's house. And he would not see the bride until this was completed. At the end of the period of separation, the groom would come to take his bride to live with him. The taking of the bride usually took place at night. And ladies, listen to this. She didn't know when the wedding was going to be. She had to be ready at any moment for the groom to come and take her. Church, we need to be ready at any moment. He could come at any moment and take us home, either individually or collectively. And so the groom, the showspin, the friend of the groom, and other male escorts would leave the father's house, conduct a torchlit a procession, and though the bride was expecting, she did not know when. She did not know the exact time. And so the groom's arrival will be preceded by two things, a shout and a ram's horn. Thessalonians tells us when he comes again, he's going to be preceded by a great shout, and the trump of God will sound. And the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to be forever with the Lord. Be ready. And after the groom received the bride together with the female attendants, the wedding party would return to the bride's home, uh, from the bride's home to the groom's home, rather. And shortly after the arrival, the bride and groom would be escorted by members of the, the bridal chamber. But she would remain veiled. And now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We shall behold him and we shall be like him. We don't see him fully now but we will see him and be just like him. And when the groomsmen and bridesmen wait outside, the bride and groom consummate uh, the marriage, and then they come out and there is a feast called the marriage feast. You see a beautiful Bible picture here? Jesus left the glories of heaven, paid the price, uh, made the covenant with us, partook of the new covenant in his blood, He's gone back to prepare a place for us. He's coming again at a time when we do not know. And then we'll see him face to face and we'll partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John the Baptist says, the friend of the groom, the showspin, who stands here and hears his word rejoices greatly. Therefore, this joy of mine, I rejoice greatly. Our hearts should be rejoicing this morning at what he's done for us what he is doing for us, and what he's going to do for us. And we should be the most content people. The most content people. The first century Jewish wedding gives us a wonderful picture of what we have here in John chapter 3 and how it applies to John the Baptist. And the word of God doesn't have to explain it because these Jewish hearers understood what was going on. They knew the Old Testament. They knew Isaiah 54, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Or Isaiah 62, I will be called by delight, and your land married. We used to sing of Beulah land. Beulah being married. Sweet Beulah land. Uh, Hosea, and I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, you will be with me in righteousness and justice forever. It's obvious from the illustration what John is talking about, that Jesus Christ is the groom. Israel was originally the bride, but now both Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ Jesus are the bride. And then he goes on in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. We have an English word there, must. Some of us don't like that word. You must do that. I know when I was a little child, you must eat your vegetables. You must clean up your room. You must, you must, you must. Well, here's another must in the Word of God. It's the Greek word day, de, D-E-I. In the classical Greek, uh, that meant um, fate, meant to be. But to the Jewish mind, to the Hebrew mind, it meant something quite different, that must. There's no clear Hebrew equivalent, uh, no word or phrase that quite matches that must. But the God of the Hebrews was infinite. He was personal. He's sovereign. And so, for the Hebrew mind, that word day meant that's my calling. That's God's will. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose for my life. So, John's watching his ministry diminish. He said, That's God's will. I'm content. In fact, it gives me great joy because God's will, God's plan, God's purpose is being fulfilled in my life. So that must is kind of a divine imperative. If you go back earlier in chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he said, marvel not that I say unto you that you must be born again. There's no other way into heaven. There's no other way. If you haven't accepted and received Jesus as your Savior, there's no other way. There's only one way to know God, through the Son. In chapter 4, when Jesus is meeting the Samaritan woman, we all know he wasn't supposed to go through Samaria, but he must go through Samaria. It was God's will. It was God's plan for his life. Take God's will for your life today. What God is doing in your life today, accept what he has planned for you. Move forward in great faith and obedience and knowing that it is God's divine plan, the fulfillment of his plan for your life. Most of us, if I were to ask you, would say, my life hasn't quite turned out the way I thought it would. There's been a few twists and turns in my life that I didn't expect. Sometimes I saw them coming, but most of the time, I didn't see them coming. It, it, it is. It's God's will. It's God's plan for my life. And Father, I accept it. I'm content in your plan in your purpose. And John was able to say, therefore my joy is complete because I understand God's will is perfect. He must increase. There's got to be more of Jesus in me and I must ge- decrease. When Jesus becomes greater and I become less, I have more joy. And John rejoices in the voice of the groom, not just because the groom is here, but because he's gathering a bride for himself. John understands there's an ultimate purpose. It's not without purpose. It's not without plan. And when we know who we are in Christ, we can rejoice at God's plan. When we know who we are in Christ, we can rejoice at God's plan. John sums up the work there in verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. It's a must. This is God's plan. The son of God, the groom, will be exalted. He will be glorified. The, and the word decrease here is in the middle voice in the Greek, telling us that John had a, a personal, intimate relationship here in the decreasing. It was good for him. Nicodemus was by, uh, baffled by the idea that he must be born again. God's sovereign plan. John saw the must and loved it. You can be here this morning and say must I don't like God's will, I'm baffled by it. Or we can say, I accept his will, his plan. And he said, nobody leaves me and goes to Jesus unless it's given to him from heaven. They go away from me and they're going to Jesus. He increases, I decrease, and this is my joy. John also connects this to two Johns, John the Baptizer and, and John the Apostle. Connect these two together over in Revelation chapter 21. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The bride is the wife of the lamb. So the groom is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so they had these questions about purification. There's the answer. Jesus takes away the sin of the pure. He takes away the sin and purifies his bride. Presents her pure, spotless, holy, Before him. Over in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands love your wives. As Christ the groom loved the church. And gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her. Set her apart. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself. In splendor. One day. We're going to be without spot. Without wrinkle. Or any such thing. That we would be holy and blemish without him in love. John tells us that Jesus is the groom. And he's a biblical example of how to resist the temptation, to rejoice over God's will. John knew his purpose. He knew who he was in Christ, and he reminds his disciples of that as well. One of the key lessons that we learn from the prodigal son is not to waste what God puts in our hands. The prodigal son took what the father gave him and he wasted it. What has God put in your hands? Let's not waste what God puts in our hands. Whether it pleases us or not, let's not waste what God gives to us. The joys and the sorrows, the trials, the hard times, the gifts, the talents, the treasures, the time, the ability... Satan would like nothing greater than to get us to take our eyes off of Jesus and what he's doing and upon us and to focus upon ourselves and more concerned about how this impacts me. than how does it impact the eternal kingdom of God? We need to be driven not by the approval of others, but the approval of God. One of the big milk companies in the 1950s, those of you may remember this, Yeah, they made a capital capital of the fact that all their cows were contented. Some of you remember that. That clever ad, uh, contented cows, became familiar to most people in the 50s. I'm not sure how you know a cow is contented, but they knew that. What is virtue in a cow may not be virtue in a man. Contentment, when it touches our spiritual lives, is surely a vice. And so we need to be content in God's will, but not content in our spiritual lives. I want to balance that this morning. Now, Paul was able to say everything that comes, I'm content with what God is doing. But he also said, I press on toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest foes of the Christian life is spiritual complacency. We can become spiritually complacent, I'm just going to coast. I'm just glad to be where I am and just going to keep coasting until he comes or calls me home. The great saints of all had a thirst for God. Their cry has been, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? They couldn't wait for that intimacy. They couldn't wait for that time when they could come and appear before God. Orthodox Christianity has fallen to its present lowest state I believe because of lack of spiritual desire. Among many who profess Christ, very few seem to have a passionate thirst. And that would be my prayer this morning, maybe that would be your prayer this morning, that God would give you a thirst, renew the thirst for spiritual things. And so this morning, pray on, fight on, sing on, don't under it, Underrate anything God may have done for you to this point. Thank God for everything up to this point, but don't stop there. Press on to the deeper things of God. Keep your feet on the ground, but let your heart soar as high as it will. Know who you are in Christ. I am in Christ, and therefore I am a child of God. I am. By faith, I am redeemed from the hand of the enemy. I am led by the Holy Spirit. I am a new creation. I am an heir of eternal life. I am forever forgiven. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. I'm part of the family of God. I am strong in the Lord and His mighty power. I am redeemed from the curse of the law. I am a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I am living by faith and not by sight. I am an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. I am transformed by the renewing of my mind. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am more than a conqueror. I am rescued from the dominion of darkness. I am waiting for the blessed hope. I didn't hear amen. amen. That's just the beginning of all the things we are in Christ. We should be the most content people. I know who I am in Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. I rejoice greatly because of the groom's voice. This joy of mine is fulfilled. Father, we thank you that indeed we can be joyful in every situation, every circumstance, everything that comes into our lives, the things that you allow, the things that you block, And we would want to say with Job this morning, blessed be the name of the Lord. May you be exalted. And Lord, I do pray that where we've lost that hunger and thirst for you, that you would just restore that. You would renew and refresh us. And Lord, that we would leave this place with a new hunger and a new thirst and a new understanding of who we are in you and the many blessings that come from that and that the world might know that we are Christians because of our relationship with you and our relationship with one another. And may our joy be complete. May it be full. May you increase as we decrease. In the name of Jesus, amen.